1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Audrey Gaskins. Uh, she's an assistant professor at Emory University in the Rollins School of Public Health. And we're going to be talking about, uh, well, everything related to semen quality in men, what's happening to it, uh, why it's important, et cetera. So, Audrey, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is uh, it's an unusual topic. What, um, what caused you to be interested in this area in the first place?
2: Sure. Uh, So a combination of things. Um, First and foremost, there have been a couple papers that have come out in the past 10 years um, that have been somewhat alarming, showing that um, male semen quality worldwide seems to be on the decline. Um, And this is something that we've seen in most developed countries um, across the U.S., um, Mm And so there's been a lot of speculation about what factors might be driving this decline in sperm counts. Um, A big one being lifestyle and environmental exposures. Um, On top of that, you know, most of my work is focused on fertility, which has historically um, mostly focused on the female exposure and and really female endpoints, although it's a couple based endpoint. Um, And so, you know, I've, I've been curious to study men because they've just been historically um, understudied and and even though they contribute, let's say 50% to um, the equation. Uh, And so it was really those two main drivers that that got me interested in studying how diet and the environment affect male fertility.
1: When you say semen quality, what does that mean? Is it just the number of sperm? Is it the morphology, you know, the number that are viable? I mean, what factors go into that semen, semen quality?
2: Uh, all of the above. Uh, so the kind of standard semen analysis would consist of sperm concentration, which is the number of sperm um, in per milliliter of ejaculate. Um, sperm motility, so um, the percentage of sperm in the sample that is moving um, in an upwards or a motile fashion. Um, morphology, so the percent of sperm in the sample that um, have a normal head, a normal tail, um, kind of all features uh, about it look look normal. Um, and then you know other ones that we assess are things like total volume, so the actual amount. Um, and then from there, those those can be used in combination to get an idea of kind of total sperm count, total normal sperm count, total modal sperm count, you know, all of those different permutations. Um, so that's kind of the standards, um, semen quality analysis, although now um, methods are being developed to look at things like DNA fragmentation in sperm, um, epigenetics in sperm, and, and other kind of more targeted markers.
1: So when uh, people say sperm quality is going down, what... What's going down? What's decreasing? What's worsening?
2: Right. It's primarily sperm concentration. So again, when I was saying before, the number of sperm um, per milliliter of ejaculate, that's the primary uh, endpoint that, that seems to be decreasing.
1: Well, what was it before on average? And what is it now? And over like what time period?
2: Right. So, if I'm remembering correctly from the study, the most recent study um, that was published in Human Reproduction, I think two years ago, um, they saw about a 52 percent decrease uh, in sperm concentrations over the past 50 years. Um, and I can't remember the exact wow. average sperm counts that they started and stopped on, but it's a pretty pretty big decline.
1: Is, what's the threshold below which people are considered infertile or it's much harder to conceive?
2: Yep. So the WHO, their um, cutoff to, to, to define low sperm concentration is 15 million sperm uh, per milliliter. And in studies that have looked at how um, semen quality and sperm concentration relate to spontaneous fertility or time to pregnancy, they've shown that um, Sperm counts below or sperm concentrations below 20 million sperm per milliliter. um, That's really the cutoff where you start to see effects on um, natural or kind of spontaneous fertility.
1: And the people, uh, so the studies that are looking at um, sperm counts going down, I I guess they would have to control for age or what kind of factors do they they control for? What modulates sperm production in a man's life? Does it, you know, go down significantly with age? I mean, what, what seems to modulate it?
2: Yeah, so age is a big one. Um, They've also tried to control for things like, like body weight, um, which we know can impact um, sperm quantity and quality. And, you know, as on average, Americans and and most um, populations worldwide have gotten heavier. um, They've also tried to control for this factor as well. Um, You know, I think for a little while, people were concerned that, you know, the technologies that we're using to measure semen quality have changed over time. And so could that be potentially driving it? But, um, as you know, more and more studies have come out that have really, you know, tried to, and, and you know, done a really good job of, of controlling for these factors. We've, we've really seen that it, it seems to be something else. Like it, it, it can't be explained by all or, you know, all of these factors are, are one in isolation.
1: So, you know, well, what do you, uh... What are you trying to figure out? Just what are the factors and, you know, why is it happening? Like, are you in a subset of this problem or are you just looking at the problem as a whole? And and what's your method or your approach to figuring it out?
2: Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm an epidemiologist, meaning that I study large populations of humans uh, and how their exposures affect um, their disease states. And so when we study male fertility, usually – we're setting a population of men, anywhere from 100 to 500 to a couple thousand. Um, and we ask them about uh, their diet and their lifestyle choices. Um, we can measure body weight and um, height and other metrics, um, other anthropometrics on them. And then for environmental chemicals, a lot of times we will, um, I take a urine sample We'll where we will assess their exposure to things like phthalates or BPA or other endocrine disrupting chemicals. And then we'll relate those to their semen quality parameters. And so my research has really been kind of in all of those different areas, just trying to see, you know, with, for example, like with the endocrine disrupting chemicals, a lot of them are hypothesized to mimic estrogen in the body. And so, you know, one of the Uh, primary hypotheses um, linking these is that, you know, the men with higher exposure to the endocrine disrupting chemicals will have um, higher levels of estrogen in the body. And and this might be negatively affecting spermatogenesis. And, um, you know, Exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals is, in theory, something that we can have control over, either through policies or kind of limiting their production, um, and, and so trying to understand like what these harmful chemicals might be, um, so that we can you know halt this decline or we can you know counsel men on you know avoiding these chemicals you know are all important um, research questions.
1: So, how does the a man's sperm count change with age, in general? Sure.
2: So on average, it goes down um, as a man ages, um, but it's it's pretty variable. You know, you you still hear reports in the news of of men who are in their seventies who are spawning offspring, um, and so you know, in some men, even when they're older, they 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 still produce enough semen um, to produce a child. And but on average, it, it tends to go down with time.
1: Well, does it? Uh, have we compared curves of that from years ago versus curves now? Like, has the slope or nature of the curve changed, perhaps that uh, reveals something? And does much happen in the, let's say, 18 to 30-year-old range?
2: Um, So most of the studies on semen quality have been cross-sectional, meaning that we just look at exposure and outcome um, at one point in time. And so we don't really have these longitudinal studies necessarily where we follow men over time. And we take multiple semen samples to look at kind of um, rate of decline within a man. We're usually kind of comparing across men, if if that makes sense. Um, And so, you know, a lot of the questions I think you're asking um, are really relevant, but we just, we don't have the data yet to kind of directly answer your question.
1: Well, you know, if the average age of the person, if you blend everyone together and, you know, it, it skews towards a 35-year-old, you know, they may have a, a much heavier body burden of chemicals because they've just been around longer than a 20-year-old.
2: Uh, I So maybe
1: right. that's uh, skewing things. I don't know.
2: Yeah, possibly. So um You know, most of the endocrine disrupting chemicals that I focus on um, are metabolized very quickly. Uh, And so, you know, there is something like when we would measure a metabolite in urine, it generally reflects exposure in the past 24 to 36 hours. Um, There are chemicals that, kind of, as you mentioned, that kind of do get stored in the adipose tissue and are more kind of long lasting exposures. Um, which you might hypothesize would kind of accumulate and maybe have a stronger effect um, among older men, but you know, even so, age is one of the easiest variables to control for. And so, in all of the studies that have kind of looked at um, sperm decline and, and have also looked at you know various lifestyle and environmental exposures, they've virtually all controlled for age. That's something that we can get good information on.
1: What about uh, frequency of, of sex with their partner and I mean, does it vary by ethnicity? Does it vary actually by if the person's uh, hetero or ho- hetero or homosexual? I wonder if any of these would have a factor.
2: Yeah. So when we uh, do studies and collect a semen sample, we. Advise participants to abstain um, for a set amount of time, so we try and kind of control for this factor by design. Um, and then, when the men come into the clinic, we uh, ask them to self-report uh, the number of days or hours um, since their last ejaculation, um, because, like you said, it, it is an important determinant of um, the outcome. But oftentimes it's not associated with the exposure. Um, So it's, it's not what we call kind of a true confounder of the relationship, but we, we do always make sure to collect information on this variable because as you mentioned, um, it can be an important determinant of semen quality.
1: Yeah. I just wonder if um, let's say a couple's trying to conceive and then they're having sex regularly with the intent to conceive. If that, I don't know, just has a big effect on the, uh, the amount of sperm that the the man produces let's say they're having sex like every third day is it uh cause the man to recruit a lot more sperm than they otherwise would in a condition where they're not doing that
2: yeah uh i I don't think we have any studies that that suggest that per se um and you know again i'll kind of point to what I said at the beginning, we like, you know, even men with low sperm count um, have 15 million sperm per milliliter of ejaculate. And the average ejaculate is anywhere from around three milliliters. So that's still a lot of sperm. <laughs> um, and it just takes one you know, healthy sperm to produce right. an embryo in a pregnancy. So we're still, ta- we're, you know, we're still talking about a lot, a lot of sperm, even when we talk about low sperm counts. Okay.
1: But well, yet, uh, you know, if 15 is a lower limit, let's say it's, you know, about 45 million sperm are necessary. So it's kind of odd to think of it in that way. Like why are so many necessary to make this happen when yeah. it only takes one, but you yeah. know, and that's another question.
2: Yeah, no, that's, it's a good point. Um, And I think, you know, that's something that a lot of people are, researchers are interested in as well as kind of, you know, uh, like, how, how is the best firm selected? And, you know, there's a lot of interest in figuring that out.
1: So what, what chemicals are you focused on? And what's the mechanism or the proposed mechanism of action where they're affecting the man?
2: Yeah, so um, my research on the environment mostly focuses on, one, air pollution exposure, um, and two, um, endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So um, as I mentioned, for the endocrine-disrupting chemicals, the primary hypothesis is that they mimic hormones in the body because they have a similar structure. The, um, they're primar- we're primarily interested in ones that mimic estrogen, because like I said, um if it's mimicking estrogen, in theory, there'll be higher levels in the body, and this could negatively impact spermatogenesis. Um, but there's also chemicals that they think might be anti-estrogenic or might mimic testosterone or, you know, all of the above. And so um, that's why a lot of interest has been placed into endocrine disrupting chemicals in, in the area of reproductive health, just because it's such a hormonally dependent outcome. Um, air pollution, it does contain some endocrine disrupting chemicals that we breathe in through the air. Um, and so that's one mechanism of possible action, but we also know that air pollution affects things like, you know, inflammation and oxidative stress in the body. Um, it can also, you know, affect DNA methylation when we talk about like epigenetics. And so there are a lot of potential pathways that we think, um, the air that we breathe might be negatively affecting reproductive health as well.
1: All right. So that's your focus is exposure to air pollution. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes, exactly.
1: So um, I guess it'd be interesting if you looked at people that are living in a given area for a time or people that come into that area and what happens to their sperm, you know, when they first enter and then when they've been there for, you know, a month or six months or a year, Mm -hmm. but again, just more factors.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think there are some some interesting kind of natural experiments that you could look at um, when it comes to air pollution. So, you know, with the, the forest fires that happen out um, out west that have been more common these past couple of years, you know, in theory, if you were able to collect multiple semen samples from men during these timeframes, um, you know, you could look to see like within a man, if those changes, those short term changes in air pollution affect um sperm quality
1: but how would you look at air pollution if their diets can be different if you know their work environments are different if like how do you anecdotally figure out let's say by interviewing someone or I mean you can't lock them in a lab mm-hmm. so how do you how do you how do you figure out what these guys are exposed to that could confound the results
2: yeah so the main way we assess uh, exposure to air pollution is based on their residential address and so we take their residential address we geocode it and then we can link that to these validated spatiotemporal models of different air pollutants. And so what these, what these models basically do is they say, you know, based on the weather conditions and um, the point sources of air pollution that are around you. So things like industrial sources or roadways, um, we, they can predict what the exposure to PM 2.5 or ozone or nitrogen dioxide might be at that person's residence. Um, for every day that we're possibly interested in. So for spermatogenesis, this typically takes about 72 days to 90 days, so about three months. And so we would look at kind of a man's average exposure to air pollution in the three months prior to their sperm sample or semen sample. Um, and then we, we make the assumption that the ambient air at their resident is a pretty good reflection of their kind of what they're inhaling. And, you know, with the caveat of like most people um, do not spend all of their time at home um, and there are important limitations of, of using this type of assessment to get at personal exposure. But again, on average, it does a pretty good job of saying, you know, this is the amount of air pollution you're exposed to. There are other kind of more, there are there are ways to assess personal exposure to air pollution that require Uh, men to carry around personal monitors um, but it's more challenging to recruit people you know the the personal monitors uh, are not perfect so there's pros and cons of each method
1: I would think season would it would have a big effect on uh, sperm count it sounds like I guess there needs to be a lot known about how sperm count varies you know I mean I'm just picturing like different ethnicities of people and then the winter, the air pollution is dramatically different from the summer. And I mean, there's, I don't know. It just, it seems like you have a tough job figuring this out. Like what what do you do to control (laughs) for stuff?
2: Right. You know, we, and, and so that's why when we do studies, we really try and collect information on all aspects of the person's life. Um, so season, uh, there, there is some seasonal variability in, in semen quality, um, which we aren't entirely sure what's driving this, like maybe it's pollution, maybe it's vitamin D from the sun, you know, maybe it's temperature, maybe it's climate. Um, we, we don't really know. Um, it really depends on the area, how much air pollution varies by season, kind of where in the country or the world we're talking, um, where, you know, some places there are huge differences by season, other places there isn't. So again, you know, one one way that we can also really help to try and build the evidences um, by looking in different populations. And if we still see the same association and, you know, across the world in different States in different groups of men, you know, then that really helps strengthen the argument that like, this is real. There seems to be something going on because we see it across all these different populations where there are probably a lot of different factors affecting the results. Well,
1: how far along are you in the studies? Like, what have you seen so far? Any trends or interesting data?
2: Yeah. I mean, one thing that we, we found pretty consistently um, is that men who consume a healthier diet have healthier sperm. Um, and this seems very simple, um, but, you know, was, was somewhat uh, novel when it came out. Um, so in general, uh, men who ate more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, fish, um, and less processed foods um, and, and red meat and starchy vegetables, um, those men just had a higher sp- sperm counts and better quality sperm. Um, so that was one of the first findings. And, we, and again, we saw this in both subfertile men and also in a young, healthy population of young men. Um, we also saw in two separate cohorts that men who engaged in more physical activity um, had significantly better or higher sperm concentrations. Um, and so, again, suggesting that maintaining an active lifestyle is important for male fertility. Um, in terms of environmental chemicals, um, we've seen that um, phthalates, which is a type of endocrine-disrupting chemical, um, negatively affects sperm concentrations. And phthalates are something that are found in everything from personal care products to um food manufacturing devices, um, to the coating of some pharmaceutical drugs. Um, it's really kind of all over the place.
1: So you're getting, um, semen samples from the men, but are you looking at their testosterone and their estrogen yeah. as you're doing it?
2: Yeah. A lot of times we do try and collect a blood sample as well. So we can measure reproductive hormones. Um, it just depends on, uh, what we have available in the, in, in the given study.
1: Well, any correlation between, um, you know, low sperm counts and, uh, low testosterone or high estrogen or you know, some kind of mix.
2: Yeah, exactly. So uh, usually, um, men with higher testosterone levels tend to have higher sperm counts. Um, we, you know, when we've been able to look at reproductive hormones, we actually haven't seen like when, when we see an effect on sperm concentration, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll see an effect on any specific hormone. Um, And so, you know, we've, so they don't always kind of go together, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's what I was wondering. What what about sex drive? Does that have any relation to, uh, well, the ability to give a sample at all? It would be tough if it was very low. But. yeah. any that,
2: correlation there. Um, so in another one of our studies, um, we are starting to look at they, they have standardized question questionnaires that get at um, sex drive and, and erectile function and um, and so we're starting to look at this input as well as kind of um, you know something beyond semen quality that could have important implications for male fertility. And, um, but this is a really new endpoint that we're just now focusing on. Um, so we're excited to kind of see if, um, some lifestyle environmental exposures also affect this endpoint as well. Cause you know, as you mentioned, that's, that's an important, um, factor.
1: Yeah. Because if, you know, if a couple is trying to conceive but the man's sex drive is low, it doesn't matter if he has like the most amazing sperm in the world,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: it's, it's, it's going to be harder for anything to happen.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's becoming it's becoming more recognized that, you know, um, erectile dysfunction is not a disorder that is limited to older men, you know, outside of reproductive age. It's, it's, it's more common than we thought among young men. And so trying to figure out like, what, what are the main risk factors for that? um, And, you know, potential treatments as well.
1: So what would be a, a happy result, you know, over the next few years for you to figure out (laughs)
2: Um, you know, I think one thing kind of looking forward and and really focusing on kind of what patients want to know is that so far we've really, we've mainly done observational research. So we've just said, you know, when we're studying diet, for example, we ask people what they eat, they provide us a semen sample and we look at the correlation or the association between the two. Um, but you know, one thing I think that we're really interested in kind of moving this forward is like okay, so if we were to randomly assign men to eat a healthy diet or to take a specific nutritional supplement, um, you know, will this actually improve their sperm counts? And then, you know, one step forward, will this actually improve the couple's chances of getting pregnant? And, um, you know, so far we haven't really been able to answer that question just because of the type of studies we've been doing. So I think, you know, that's really the way that uh, most people in my field are hoping things will go um, to really help build the evidence um, for couples and for men who are, you know, potentially struggling from low, sp- low sperm counts or difficult to getting pregnant.
1: Well, if it's, you know, pollution does have a role, what do you do? And tell the person like go go to the country for a month or uh, you know, move.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean there are things you can do to re- to reduce your personal exposure. Um, you know, like I mentioned, a big a big component of your personal exposure is where you live and where you work. So trying to um, to as much as you're able, trying to avoid um, places near a major highway or another major industrial emitter of pollution. Um, If that's outside your control, you can also try and limit your um, time outdoors during you know more heavily polluted times, so during rush hour um, or on days when air pollution levels are really high. You know your indoor filtration system, um, HVAC unit, that can um, be an important modifier of you know how much of the outdoor air pollution gets to your indoors. So there are things you can do on a personal level, but uh, like. Policy is is majorly important, and, and making sure that we elect people that um, are protecting our environmental health um, is is really important.
1: And any variation um, across the world in various countries that you've seen
2: in, in terms of semen quality? Yeah, right. Yeah, so most of the most of the work has focused on um, the U.S. and even more broadly developed countries, um, and so. It's hard to make strong conclusions um, comparing uh, to other countries, just because there isn't a ton of data yet. Um, But as I mentioned, most of the decline that we've seen in sperm counts has really been isolated to Western countries like the United States um, and Europe. Um, And so, you know, hopefully now that other, it's becoming a a research topic of more interest to, um, epidemiologists and and clinicians is, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get more data and and we'll, we'll be able to look in more understudied areas such as developing countries.
1: Okay. Very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more, you know, maybe read papers that you've, you've authored and, you know, get in contact with, uh, or find out more about your research.
2: Sure. So um, you can follow me on Twitter. I try and tweet about our research when it comes out. And I also promote other colleagues' research in the field um, that I think is interesting and that I'm reading. Um, my Twitter is Audrey Jane 4 um, You can also, you know, our... The other way that you can kind of keep abreast of, of this type of research is by setting a Google alert um, or going on PubMed, which is kind of our academic search engine, and just searching for, you know, diet and semen quality or environment and semen quality. Um, and all of the papers um, or all of the science uh, that is funded by the National Institute of Health, which is the majority of my research, should be um, publicly available to, to U.S. citizens.
1: That's great. Well, Audrey, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Sure. It was great to be here.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. ketogenic diets stem cells aging regenerative medicine and more my goal for you the listener is to learn from these podcasts you may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better steer you towards a new career or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem remember however this podcast and its content is informational in nature only no medical tax legal financial or psychological advice is being given If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.